to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we continue our study of Philippians, and the subtitle for our study is Finding Joy in a Negative World. I'm going to start off with a true story. August 3rd, 1986, there were two ships in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. One was a passenger ship, one was a freighter, hauled stuff. They collided. 423 passengers died. And it was wintertime, or it was fall, but the, the waters were full of ice. But the reason they collided had nothing to do with a radar problem, a malfunction. There wasn't any fog. In fact, the ships could see each other and were aware of each other's presence for 45 minutes before the crash. The reason they crashed is that neither one of the captains wanted to change course. They felt like the other one should. So basically, these ships crashed because of selfishness. Um... Both of them could have made a change. Neither one of them wanted to. They both were too proud to yield first. Basically, it was a game of chicken, I guess. But by the time they realized that they were in trouble, it was too late. And that's a great picture to what selfishness and pride can cause, not just physically, but especially in relationships. You know, relationships, we're talking about relationships within the body of Christ, Paul's going to be talking about relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ and the Philippian church. But everything we're going to talk about tonight applies not only to our relationships with each other within the body of Christ, but they apply to our relationships in our homes, you know, in our workplaces and things like that. So keep that in mind as we go through it. Selfishness and pride can cause a lot of damage. The title of the lesson tonight is Others First. Others First. What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, Others First? What did you say, Sharon? Not me first. Very good. Hey, that works. Anything else comes to mind when you hear the word or the phrase others first? To be selfless. Okay. Anything else? (laughs) You think who's going to move over? Well, if it's other first, you should be thinking I should move over. (laughs) Okay. That's true, Felix. That's true. In 1977, one of the best-selling books was called Looking Out for Number One. And unfortunately, that's the attitude. Um, We could say it's the attitude of the world, but to be honest with you, it's the attitude of our fallen, sinful human nature. If we just follow what comes naturally, that's going to be our attitude. Okay? Um, If you don't believe that, I think you're denying something a little. I'm not saying you are that way. I'm just saying that's the way our fallen human nature is to look out for ourselves. And we all do a pretty good job doing that. But if we do that exclusively we end up with all kinds of problems. So, again, the title tonight is Others First. Who are the others that we should put first? Before we jump into it, what did you see, Lisa? Everybody other than yourself. Okay? How can you do that for somebody on the other side of the world? Pray for them. I was wondering what you you guys were going to say. Yeah, it'd be easy to think, well, I can't do it for somebody on the other side of the world. Yeah, you can. You can pray for them. You can be involved in missions, you know. But that being said, I think we have a greater responsibility and a greater opportunity to put the others around us first. To put the others around us 
first. Okay. It reminds me a little bit of the man who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? All right. He wasn't talking about Mr. Rogers. Um, some of you got that. But anyway, what was Jesus's answer when, you know, the guy asked him, what do I need to do? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy said, well, who's my neighbor? What was Jesus's answer? He used a parable. Which parable? The Good Samaritan. And what was the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan as far as who our neighbor is? Others that are in need. Anyone we come in contact with. And if you understand the cultural background of the Good Samaritan, they were enemies. So that includes, and maybe even especially, people we wouldn't be drawn to to help. And that's what seems to be opposite of what logic would say to be true. Um, You know, the greatest way to find peace, joy, love, and satisfaction and fulfillment is not to be selfish. Maybe you can look back to a time in your life when you were selfish or a specific situation or whatever. And it might have felt good for a while, but if you give yourself over to that, eventually it's like it it just doesn't meet the need. But when you find yourself being unselfish and you put other people first, others first. I think I see a lot of heads nodding. You can say, yeah, that's what brings satisfaction. That's what brings fulfillment. All right. And that's what God created us to do. So that's the background to what we're going to be looking at tonight in Philippians chapter two. Uh, Just a quick review. Paul had founded this church. They had a really great relationship. This letter was written about 10, 12 years or so later while Paul is in prison. The church in Philippi had sent him an offering as they'd done a couple other times before. Okay, and it was a good church, not a lot of problems, but it was not perfect. We've already studied the introductory stuff, and he was encouraging, we talked about last week, to stand together against opposition from the outside. Okay, Paul had faced great persecution when he's in Philippi. And after he left, the believers were facing persecution, and they couldn't leave. They were still there. And so he's encouraging them to stand strong, stand together. But now he's going to shift gears a little bit. He's going to be talking about a danger they have from within. And that is when they start getting on each other's nerves. And they start looking out for themselves rather than each other. And uh, there's a little bit of a problem with disunity. We brought that up last week. It says, Paul, sounds like Paul's saying some things that there's some problem with disunity. And there is little sprinklings of it throughout um, this letter. So we're going to take a look at that. Our text today is listed as Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And that is true. We're going to focus primarily on verses 1 to 5. 5 through 11 is a tremendous statement. And many Bible scholars believe it's an old hymn about Jesus Christ. And it's one of the greatest theological, it's just really cool. We're going to study that in depth next week, okay? But it provides an example for the points today, so we will read it, all right? So a couple different categories we're going to take a look at. First of all is four benefits of for being a Christian. Four benefits of being a Christian. Philippians 2, 1. So, some translations say, therefore, or you just got done about stand together, be unified. You got people coming against you from the outside, be unified, stand together. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, we're just going to stop right there. If, and when it says if here, you know, in English we have if 
then. And you have to understand from the context, from the tone of voice, and that kind of thing, how confident the speaker is about whether that is true or not. Well, that is not true in the Greek language. There's a couple of different ways of saying if, then. And one of them in particular is if, and you know that it is. There's no doubt. And that's the kind of if that's used here. So Paul's not saying if by some chance you might have experienced this. He's saying if there is, and I know that there is because there definitely is. It'd be the same thing as saying since, okay? It could literally be translated since these things are true, all right? So these are four benefits we see of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. The first one, letter A, is encouragement. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any encouragement in Christ. That word for encouragement is a really neat word in the New Testament. Uh, First of all, because we all need it, (laughs) and thank God when we get it. All right, But that word is used for some really cool stuff in the New Testament. It's, meant, it's, it's used for encouragement. All right, But it is also that same root is used for the Holy Spirit, All right, for a name of the Holy Spirit. I have on your note sheet John 14, 16, and that's when Jesus tells the disciples in the upper room, he says, I'm going to leave, but it's actually good that I leave because then the Holy Spirit's going to come. And he refers to him as another comforter, All right, another helper. And that's what that root word means, a helper, someone who comes alongside you to help. You know, we can probably think of actual physical examples. Have you ever been doing something and you just can't do it? You need an extra pair of hands. You need an extra brain. You need something. And somebody comes along. Maybe God sends them or you call out, whatever, and they help you. And that's the idea that is here in one of the roles and functions of the Holy Spirit. Of course, if we know Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But he comes alongside to help. And so he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you're in Christ, now that's the biggest blessing right there. It's not on the list, but being in Christ. That means we're saved from our sins. We're in relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, Another aspect of it is that when God sees us, he sees Jesus because we're in him. All right, we we won't dig deeply into that. But he says, if you have any encouragement, and I know you do, in Christ, somebody who stands by you and with you, all right. The second one, B, is comfort. Comfort. Any comfort from love. Whose love do you think he's talking about? Because it doesn't spell it out here. If you have, or since you have comfort from love, whose love? God's love? Is that the only type of love that we might have comfort from? Love from one another? Yeah, loving one another? Yeah. Um, most, I'm sorry, what? And, yeah, I don't know. I don't think very many enemies will love us, but we definitely want to try to love them. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Comfort from love. I think it applies to both. All right. I think it's one of the reasons that Paul leaves it open. He doesn't say if you got comfort from God's love or you got comfort from your love from one another. And it would probably include Paul's love. Paul loves these people. They love him. Basically, the love that we share. And to be honest with you, the love that we have for each other, where does it come from? God. You know, the only true, real, lasting love we can have is because God gives it to us, and he wants it to flow through us, all right? And so he says, if you've got close relationships marked by genuine concern and helpfulness and love, you know, from Jesus, from, from others, that's another thing we have. He says, and since that's so, but then he goes on, let us see. Fellowship. I use the word fellowship. It says, any participation in the Spirit. 
The reason I use the word fellowship is because that's really what it's talking about. The word there, you may have heard this one because, you know, there's some Greek words you hear pe- preachers talking about, okay? And, and have you heard the word koinonia before? That's the word that's used here. It's used for fellowship. It means those things that we have in common. It means we don't look at our differences so much. We don't focus on our differences. We don't focus on the areas where we disagree. But we focus on what we have in common and that fellowship that we have together. And we have it because of the Spirit. We're in the Spirit, just like we're in Christ. And the Spirit is in us. And that common Spirit, that common presence of Christ within us allows us to have fellowship. I I think it was last week we talked about it. No matter what differences we might have, the things we have in common are so much more important. And that's what we focus on. So he says, if you've got common fellowship, you've got relationship with God and with each other, you're, you're partners, you're sharing together. And then the last one, letter D, I know it's two things, but they're kind of joined together. They're meant to be together. Affection and sympathy. He says, any affection and sympathy. All right. What does the word affection mean? What, what comes to your mind when you think of the word affection? What did you say, Sharon? Caring dearly for someone. someone. Okay. What else comes to your mind? Charisma. Charisma. Okay. What else comes to your mind when you think of affection? Love. It's a a synonym in many situations like love. I think there's also kind of a tenderness, right? When you think of affection, it's not, uh, to me anyway, the connotation is not necessarily a real aggressive thing, not that it can't be, but but it's kind of a real tender, nice, loving, what would you say, Lynn? Compassion, yeah. In fact, sympathy. That's why they put affection in, that's why Paul put affection and sympathy together because sympathy is also like compassion. Yeah, and what does sympathy and compassion mean? What comes to your mind when you think of sympathy and compassion? Caring. Caring. You've got this feeling, you've got this affection for this other person, and it makes you care. Okay? And it even goes a step further than that. It's not just that you care, but you care enough that you want to do something about it. And if you can do something about it, you will. Okay? So he says, I mean, it's that idea that somebody really, really cares about me. And they're sensitive to me. They're sensitive to what's going on in my life. And they they really care, and they really would like to help. And so Paul basically says, if this is what characterizes your relationships because of Jesus Christ, and I know it does. Okay, he, does, he knows it because he's been to the church a couple times, but he also knows that that's what Jesus does. All right, He says, since these things are true, then we're going to get to the second point. But the point I want to make before we go on is that these are all benefits that we have available to us for being a Christian. And we ought to look at our own lives and our own relationships. I saw your hand, Carlton, just a second. We ought to look at our own lives and our own relationships and make sure... Not only that we're experiencing that, because if we're not, we may have put up some walls and barriers that need to come down, but also that we're giving that, because if we're not extending that to others, it makes it kind of harder for them to extend it back. They still should anyway, just like we need to love our enemies and love those that are hard to love, but uh, we need to examine ourselves and examine our relationships in, in, in our church. And our, you know, are these things evident? Yeah, Carlton, you had your hand up a minute ago. Yeah, agape is one of the words for love, you know, and it's not romantic love, it's not physical love, it is a love that really cares about other people and wants what's best for them. Norris? Another word that comes to mind, tenderhearted. Tenderhearted, that's a good synonym there too. Yeah. So imagine, and 
to me, it's not that hard to imagine because I think it's true, although we have room for improvement. Imagine our church being so full of strong relationships with one another where a lot of encouragement is going on, there's comfort, there's growth, really caring about other people, rejoicing with the good, sympathizing and helping each other in the bad, and I see a lot of that going on. But we don't want to become comfortable and say we're good enough. There's always room for improvement. And the thing is, there are certain people, it's easy to be that way too and with, and maybe there's certain people it's not quite as easy. And I would challenge us all, myself included, to say, who are the people that I have a little bit more difficult time really kind of relating to, feeling for, for whatever reason? They may rub you the wrong way. It may have something to do with whatever. And make that a goal. Say, God, help me to really love them with your love. Okay? Again, uh, a side note here. Uh, If you're in a family, most of us are, but, I mean, we may not be close to our family. Make sure that these things are important priorities in your family, in your marriage, with you and your other family members, okay? And again, the main obstacle to this is selfishness or self-centeredness, and so we've got to keep that in mind. All right, the second thing that we're going to see in this passage is four characteristics of spiritual unity, because Paul, basically Paul is saying is, you know, I look at your situation, you've got people coming against you from the outside, you've got to stand together, you know, against these forces that are coming out against you, but there could be a little bit of trouble with some unity. you got to have some unity to stand together. And since all these things are so, okay, since you've experienced that encouragement, you've experienced that comfort, that fellowship, that affection and sympathy, then stand united. Don't let anything tear you apart. So we go back to our text. Since so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I know it sounds like the first and the fourth one are exactly the same thing. He says being of same mind and of one mind, but there's a very, very slight nuanced difference that we'll get into here. All right? So basically, if these things are so, and I know they are, then this should be what the result is. Because you've experienced all this stuff in Jesus Christ, don't let anything drive a wedge between you guys. It's a work of the enemy. He doesn't mention that here, but in other places, it's a work of the enemy to divide and to conquer. And he says, you know, God's done this for you, so this is what your response should be. And he says, if you do this, this will complete my joy. It's like saying, if you really want to make me happy, do this. Okay? Now, it's not just Paul. If you really want to make God happy, (laughs) you know, do this. So, anyway, you know, Paul's already been talking about things that bring him joy. And we've mentioned that before. There's more joy in this book or this letter than almost any other he's written. And he's in prison. But he is experiencing joy. He says, but you know what? In spite of all the joy I've already got, if you really want to make me even happier, you really want to complete my joy, he says, this is it. He says, first of all, um, letter A, one mind, one mind. He says, be by being of the same mind, like-minded. We talked about this a little bit last week. He's repeating a little bit of the things that he said in chapter 1. Uh, I'll ask the same question I asked last week because some of you may not have been here and we need to have this emphasized. Being of one mind, does that mean we all need to agree on everything? No. But very quick to say, though, I think we mentioned it last week, that we do need to work on being in agreement on the things that the Bible says. 
Because God said it. But the other stuff, our opinions and preferences and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't mean that we should agree on everything. But if that's the case, if we don't have to agree on everything, we don't have to become like cookie-cutter copies of each other and like all the same stuff and say the same thing and believe everything and have the same preferences, then what does it mean when it says of one mind, being of the same mind, being like-minded? What does that mean then? Lynn? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can only be done through the work of the Holy Spirit because of that root problem, selfishness, you know, and we're going to get to that, especially in the third point. But the only way we really can be like minded and one minded is through the work of the Holy Spirit and working on being unselfish. Because being like-minded means that, okay, we may not totally agree on this or that. Again, we're not talking about biblical truth. We need to all agree on biblical truth. That The Bible is what God's word says. The things that are clear, the things that are obvious, that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to believe, what we're going to act on. Okay? But what that means is that, you know what? If I've got a preference and you've got a preference, then I'm willing to at least meet you halfway, but maybe just give up my preference for your preference. You see what I'm saying? Okay? Uh, a phrase I like to use is that we may not always agree, but we need to learn to disagree agreeably. All right? Uh, it has more to do with our attitude, having an agreeable, cooperative spirit. I've used this illustration many times with our governing boards of the church. We have an elder board and we have a deacon board. And we get together and we have discussions, we make decisions, establish policy, talk about all kinds of stuff. You know, the elders with the spiritual things, the deacons with the physical and the financial. But... Those boards, it doesn't mean that every single person on the board always agrees 100% on everything we talk about. But once we've talked about it, and we've prayed about it, and we've talked about it, and we've prayed about it, and we've made decisions, and we all tried to give and take and compromise and all that kind of stuff, that we stand united, okay, because of choices that are made, all right? So let it be one love. He says having the same love, having the same love. I think he's talking about loving as Christ has loved us. We've already talked about the love part of it, okay? Um, Jesus said they'll know we are Christians by our love. And again, the way we can look at our own lives is they say, I, I really do love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are so many it's so easy to love. But what about the ones that it's not so easy to love? <laughs> what did you say, Lisa? What did you say? You lead them to Jesus? So are you trying to say the only reason you wouldn't love them is if they don't know Jesus? Okay. Anyway. Yes. We need to try to love others. And we got to keep in mind our culture says that love is primarily about emotions. That's not a biblical definition of love. What is a biblical definition of love? What did you say, Carlton? It is a decision. It's an action. Okay. And that, that is definitely true. But... That's vague. That's kind of just, it's a decision or an action to do what? To what? To serve. That's a good manifestation of it. Lynn, what were you going to say? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, make an extra, extra, an extra effort, an extra, extra effort to love those that are hard to love. And it's a choice. It's an action. And it's, 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 it's a decision to do what's best for them. Irrespective of emotion. Now, I'm glad for the emotions of love. Okay? And that's true romantically. My wife and I love each other dearly because we're committed to each other. We want But we have that emotion too. But I'm glad that's true in the body of Christ. I mean, there are some people it's hard to have the emotion for. That's where you just got to make the decision. I'm going to do what the right thing is. 
Okay, and what the best thing is. And then the good thing is, is that if you do the right thing, the emotions will follow. This is similar but different, and I see your hand, Felix. I'll come right back to you. Um, I didn't even think about this until just now, but I heard the story of a, and this is a true story, of a, a family counselor who was counseling with a couple. And um, I can't even remember who it was. I read it in the book, and this is something he did more than one time. Couples that would come to him and say, well, you know, we just don't love each other anymore. You know, we're thinking about getting a divorce, blah, blah, blah. He says, well, you came to me for counsel. Are you willing to do what I tell you to do? He said, yeah. He said, okay, I want you to go home, and I want you to act like you love each other. Whatever that means to you, you know, you're going to do for that other person that you what you would do if you had those feelings of love. You're going to do what's best. You're going to do what's good for them. You're going to you're going to serve them. The word Lizette used, and he says most couples, if they will honestly do that, the feelings return. You know, and it's interesting because sometimes the feelings leave because we stop doing those kind of things. We start living for ourselves instead of the other person. And while I'm on the topic, I'll go ahead, and because maybe somebody needs to hear this, that that is the key to any solid relationship, but especially a marriage relationship is when you have two people that are totally committed to what's best for the other person, above what they think is best for them. You know, if you only got one, you got a giver and a taker. And if you got two takers, watch out. <laughs> but when you have two givers, two people that says, you know what, I'm not as much concerned about me. I want what's best for you, even if it costs me. And I don't get everything I want. And the other person feels the same way. That is the main number one key to a great marriage. Now we're back to the body of Christ. <laughs> okay. So one love. All right. We better move on. Oh, that's right. Felix, you had your hand up. What did you say, Felix? You may have forgotten by now. But What would you say? <laughs> Bob Marley said one love. Well, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that reference. It doesn't surprise me that it comes from you guys. But... Uh, I don't know what he meant, so we won't use it for an illustration. But anyway, letter C. <laughs> letter C. One spirit. One spirit. In, the, in the, the English Standard Version, it says being in full accord. It's not talking about a Honda. Um, if we were all in one accord, a Honda, it would be full. But that's not what he's talking about. Being in full accord. It literally, in the original language, is united souls. Okay, a togetherness of soul, a one spirit, not the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit is definitely involved in all these things. Okay, but we're knit together in our souls. All right, this 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 unity again, the whole thing's about unity. And and I think of Jesus's desire for unity. And when he prayed for his people in John 17, his disciples right then, but he prayed for us. And he said, Lord, may they be one like you and I are one. May they be in unity. And then letter D. One purpose. Purpose is the word I used. It's where Paul said of one mind. Okay? Uh, as I said, the first one and the fourth one sound very similar. One being of the same mind and then being of one mind. But the first one has the connotation of being like-minded and agreeable, cooperative spirit. And this is related, but it has to do more with purpose. Okay? Being united in purpose. And what would that purpose be? It would be, it would be whatever God wants it to be. It, it, it literally says thinking one thing. All right. Again, not that you all have the same exact thoughts about everything, but thinking one thing as far as what our purpose is. And, and one of our primary purposes we have in God's word is to reach people for Jesus and help them grow in that relationship. I mean, what did Jesus say? Is he go and make disciples? Two things. Well, they got to get saved first to be a disciple, but then they got to grow. And so, being one in purpose. 
focus on that goal of spreading the gospel and touching people's lives. And the same thing is true here. Just imagine our church, that we could have this passion more than we do now, okay? Devoted to being united, being agreeable with one another, cooperating, have a cooperative spirit, loving one another, always looking out for what's best for the others, having that one spirit, that spiritual togetherness, and focus on the purpose of what God has called us to do. That's the goal. And again, the same thing can be true for marriages and families, all right? And the main obstacle is selfishness, selfishness. Which brings us to the third and last point. We're making good time here. The key. What is the key to all this? It is to count others more significant. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition and cons- or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So this idea of counting others more significant, we've really kind of dug into already quite a bit, but Paul defines it negatively and then positively. So letter A, defined negatively, we have that statement, do nothing. Now, it's interesting because the word do actually isn't in the original language. It just says nothing, right? So it's not just doing, but it involves our thinking, okay? Paul's trying to make a point. He just says, hey, if this is going to happen, nothing. I mean, just nothing. Nothing. Don't think. Don't say. Don't do. And to be honest with you, our, our, our words and our actions start with our thoughts. So we really need to start with our thoughts, Okay. He says, nothing from selfish ambition. There's your first bullet point. Nothing from selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? How would you define that? What comes to mind when you think about it? What? Looking out for number one. The book title I mentioned, right? Yeah, looking out for number one. All right. Um, the the uh, word that is used here, it has the idea of ambition, but ambition that's so strong that you're willing to strive for it. Okay. Um, it's that struggle to get your own way when other people don't want you to have it or it's opposed to what other people want. It's a rivalry right thing. It's a rivalry-like thing. It's you want to advance your own agenda. You want what you want, when you want it, and how you want it. It's the exact same word that Paul used in the first chapter, Philippians 1.17, when he's talking about how the gospel is being preached. Some people are doing it with the right attitude. Some people are doing it just because they want to get back at him. All right? And in fact, let me go back to 117 and read it to you. He says, uh, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. Unfortunately, there's still people that do that today. They preach the gospel and are involved in ministry and stuff for how, how, what they can get out of it, trying to get ahead. Paul would say if they're preaching a pure gospel, there's some good coming out of it, but that's not good for them. All right? But he says that that shouldn't be our attitudes. No selfish ambition. The second bullet point is nothing from conceit. How would you describe, define, or what comes to your mind when you think of conceit? What? Self-centeredness again. But it's also a kind of synonym for pride. You know, again, something we all have to wrestle with. Thinking we're better than others. More important. Our needs are more significant. Um, the, the word that's used there literally is empty glory. And if you think about it, all the things that people take pride in, their position, their possessions, their power, all those are peas, but you know, whatever, over the long haul, they're not going to amount to anything. 
So empty glory is kind of a really picturesque way to describe that. But conceit, pride, all right? He says, don't let those things happen, all right? If we're going to do others first, and we want to have this unity, and we want to have this one mind and spirit and all that kind of stuff, he says, we've got to get this stuff out of our minds, out of our lives, nothing that's motivated by selfish ambition, conceit, pride. Don't let those attitudes take root in your life. And then he defines it positively in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. The first bullet point is humility, Okay, He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. There's where the title is, what we're focusing on, counting others more significant. We need to have humility. How many of you need more humility? If you didn't raise your hand, you definitely need more humility. (laughs) Heard a story about a pastor one time, and um, the board had gotten him a plaque honoring him for his humility, and they took it away when he hung it on his wall. Silly little illustration. You know, humility is one of those things you can't brag about because then you don't have it, right? Anyway, humility. We could all use a little bit more. But humility, sometimes people think that means I have to feel bad about myself or think poor myself or put myself down. That's not what humility is. Humility basically means that we just have an honest opinion of ourselves. We've got strengths. We've got weaknesses. God's good to us. But in God's sight, we are who we are. And I'm not going to put myself above others, you know, um, uh, we, it's, it's basically a healthy respect for God and for others and for ourselves. In Romans 12.3, Paul says, uh, same Paul, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Uh, Peter talks about it. We're not going to read it, but 1 Peter 3.8 and 1 Peter 5.5-6, the idea of humility. Now, the thing that's interesting is just like um, in our society, there are some people that would value humility because they see it as a positive thing. But in the dog-eat-dog world, it's not valued. It's like, no, you don't need humility. You've got to get out there and you've got to get what you want to get. In the Greek world, it was the same way. They didn't value humility. But in their culture, they looked at humility as servitude, as you are under somebody else's thumb. And that's not really the idea of what's coming across here. All right? So we need to deal, we need to have humility. And he says, look to the interests of others. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The idea of look means to regard as your aim, to focus, to fix your attention on. So basically it means look beyond yourself. Okay? Get your eyes off of yourself and look to other people and take that natural concern that we would have for ourselves and have it for other people. And I really like the way Paul worded this because it doesn't mean that we ignore our own interests or our own needs or our own desires. He says, look not only. He didn't say forget about your own interests and your own desires and your own needs. He says, look not only. Don't be so self-focused that you don't see other people. Look at them first. Okay? And then he gives us a great definition by example, the example of Jesus. We're going to read verses 5 to 11. Like I said, we're going to dig into that next week. And you're like, glad that's true because we only got a minute left. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, he gives Jesus as the perfect example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul uses this opportunity to use Jesus as an example that Jesus did all this stuff, so be like him. But he also uses an opportunity to just really glory in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did. And again, we'll dig into that next week. Okay, He did all that for us. And we were rebellious, nasty old sinners. Then we should be willing to do it for others, even when they're rebellious, nasty old sinners. Okay? All right. We need to think and act like Jesus. The last thing on your note sheet. Jesus demonstrated selfless love expressed in self-denial and self-sacrifice for the good of the one loved. Who is the one that was loved? Me and you. Yeah, in the world. And, you know, it's true that it's the world, but we've got to make it personal. It's like, well, God just loved the world like this big old group, massive people. No, each and every individual, including you and me. So the key to personal fulfillment and Satisfaction in relationships, um, in addition to the unity and the growth and the fulfillment that we need to have as a church, are the things we've talked about tonight. We need to count other people more significantly. Others first. Others first. So how do we do this? Real quick, I'm just going to tell you instead of get into a discussion because we're going to finish. Do we pray that God will change us? Yes. But it's much more simpler than that. We just start making the right choices. Because if we wait till God changes us and we feel like it, we may be waiting a long time. Instead, we just need to start doing the right thing by other people. Like that illustration I gave you of the, the marriage counselor. Start acting in loving ways even if you don't feel like it. And if you're fortunate, the feeling will come. But even if the feelings don't come, keep acting in loving ways. What's best for the other person. Look for ways to encourage people, to comfort them, to grow in relationships, to really care about other people. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing and sympathize and help those who are struggling. Okay? And build new relationships. You know, if you've already got some really great relationships, don't stop there. I got enough friends. Well, you may have enough to make you happy, but make a bunch more. Okay? Make a bunch more. All right. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the time in your word tonight. God, we pray that you would help us to be unselfish. We pray that you'd help us to put others first. We thank you that you did that to save us from our sins. God, I pray that you would help us to see how this applies not only in our relationship within the body of Christ and our family here at our church, Lord, but how it may apply to my relationship or our relationship with our spouse, our kids, our coworkers, Lord God, and especially for those that we find it a struggle, perhaps, to love and to respond positively to. Give us grace. Give us power. Help us to do it. And may our church continue to grow with that kind of love and that kind of reputation, but the reputation is not near as important as the fact that it's true. And, Father, help us with our areas of difficulty and with the people that may cause the difficulty for us. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, 
please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 